Operators, start earning points with Lamb Weston's new Potato Perks app. Redeem points for back-of-house smallwares, custom marketing materials, and more. Register today to get your free 500 points and a rebate up to $100. Visit go.lambweston.com slash potatoperks sign up to download. How big of a deal is the unionization effort at Starbucks? Hello, this is Jonathan Mays, Editor-in-Chief of Restaurant Business, and in this week's episode of A Deeper Dive, I'm joined by my colleague Peter Romeo to talk about the unionization effort right now at the Coffee Giant. More than 200 Starbucks locations have voted to form a union. The company has undertaken a massive effort to stop it. We discussed that campaign, Starbucks' response, whether it's working or not, and whether other restaurant chains should worry right now. We also talk about the California Fast Act and the potential impact that the newly passed fast food wage law could have on quick service chains and other restaurant employers in the state. We also talk about whether that law could spread to other states. We're talking unions this week on this week's episode of A Deeper Dive, so please have a listen. All right, I am here with Peter Romeo. Peter, welcome to the podcast, sir. Thank you, Jonathan. As always, it's a pleasure to be here. So, all right, let's ask about uh, let's ask about the state of unions. So, a lot's been going on, obviously, on the Starbucks front in particular. How how serious is this union issue to them? You think? Uh, I think that the union issue is really critical to Starbucks, um, no doubt about it. And uh, they've definitely taken a tougher stance. This approach of offering concessions, perks, little benefits just to the non-unionized worker is actually a pretty astute tactic and pretty aggressive. Uh, you know, there, there likely will be some more legal challenges of it, but it makes a point. And uh, if it does nothing else, then open uh, employees' eyes to the fact that joining a union costs them money. That is a good thing. But I, I think it it has been a very profound influence. I guess what kind of surprises me about it is the rest of the industry doesn't read it as such, that they don't see the implications for them. And and I think in that respect, the industry is making a, a very grave mistake because the unions are really making great strides in penetrating the restaurant industry in a lot of different ways. And, and I should say that, you know, this sounds anti-union, and I don't mean it to be. Unions serve a very useful purpose in curbing excesses and, and in, indeed in giving workers a voice when they need one. But uh, the industry should, given that this is happening, the industry would be smart to sort of uh, recognize it as a real watershed time for, for them when it comes to labor and to try to deal with it accordingly rather than trying to keep their heads in the sand and hope that they're passed over by this because, as we saw in California, the unions are really making great strides in ways that would have been unimaginable a few years ago. Yeah, we'll definitely touch on California here in a minute. But I I guess the thing, I, you know, I mean, there are certainly some evidence, it appears, that some of the way Starbucks is dealing with the union is actually starting to have some success They've, you know, the the unionization spread seems to have slowed since the pay rates were increased in August. You know, I think the thing that surprises people in the industry is that Starbucks is so, I mean, their benefits package 
when compared to other restaurant chains is actually quite significant. I mean, they they offer more benefits to, to part-time workers than anybody that I know of off the top of my head. Uh, they get workers who are there specifically for certain benefits that they pay out. And then they've gone ahead and increased it more recently. And I think that some people think it's kind of a Starbucks thing. Like, mm -hmm. you know, that maybe almost they're attracting a certain type of workforce. And maybe they are. I mean, because you've, as you've pointed out before, this these things generally tend to start at coffee shops mm -hmm. uh, a little bit more aggressively. And uh, Starbucks is a coffee shop. Uh, so I think that there's sort of, I wonder if that's what they think is it preventing them from having some of the same issues. But man, you got to think that at some point this unionization thing spreads and not just at Chipotle. Oh, uh, no doubt about it. There is a lot happening sort of behind the curtain that is going to make it much easier for the unions to take some of the tactics that have worked successfully at Starbucks and at a number of small coffee chains and to uh, uh, translate that or to bring that to to the McDonald's and the Burger Kings of the world. Um, there's no doubt about it. And uh, the unique aspects of Starbucks, you know, their workforce perfectly fits the model of the target that the unions have for the sort of the next generation of members. You know, I had the privilege of interviewing Mary Kay Henry, the head of the SEIU, and she was talking about that and about how important it is to reach out to people whose grandparents might have been in the union, but whose parents saw no need to do that. Um, so uh, that's why the coffee segment has been such fertile ground. But uh, there are a lot of drivers that you wouldn't think would come into play that did come into play at Starbucks. And I've had uh, the opportunity now to talk to a number of workers at Starbucks. And although they, they do indeed say it's a matter of having a voice in the direction of the brand, you press a little, you find out that the work day at Starbucks kind of changed during the pandemic. It became tougher. The uh, not only in terms of the, the the volume and the concerns about infections, but also just with changes in Starbucks menu. They're doing a lot more elaborate drinks, the mixed things, the the that type of thing, and and it's taken its toll. That the what used to be an ideal restaurant job uh, has become a bit more of a slog. And what they all say is it's it's not as much fun. And, and that dynamic, you know, we we hear from a lot of employers, restaurant employers, that they're waking up to that. Um, I thought it was very interesting that Kevin Hockman, the new CEO of Brinker, in talking about some of their problems in his first conference call with financial analysts. Talk uh, spoke about the need to make working at Chili's fun again, mm -hmm. and that was not a matter of you know let's be good corporate citizens. It was more a matter of hey, we need to do something about our labor and retention. So I, I think that there's a lot of that going on, and that is adding considerable topspin to this whole thing with unions. They are finding that uh, their promises are falling on receptive ears because workers are feeling a little burnt. So. Yeah. Yeah, I, for sure. I, it's 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 easy to forget just how tough these couple of years were for for restaurant employees. Mm -hmm. So you know, you go back to March of 2020, and and, and more than half, more than half of restaurants, I think it's like in the neighborhood of 60 percent 
of the restaurant workforce lost their jobs, at least temporarily. And then, you know, as they were, you know, and those who were remaining were, were, were being, you know, they had to work on the front lines during a period where it was actually very scary at the time. I mean, we, it's easy to forget now, but at the time, like we, you know, there was no vaccines in the early, early days, you know, we, you know, we were told that masks wouldn't necessarily work, you know, and then once, once that, once masks emerged as a, as a potential solution, you know, suddenly they were on the front lines of, of mask enforcement and, you know, and then they were on the front lines of vaccine enforcement. And then they were, you know, they've had to deal with employee shortages. They've had to deal with all sorts of other things. And, you know, and it's been really, really difficult for 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 that workforce. And even now, I mean, you know, the the, the restaurant business is still in the neighborhood of 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 eight to 10 percent short of the, the number of employees that they had pre-pandemic. Now, there are fundamentally fewer locations, but the industry is generating more sales. So. Mm-hmm. It's 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 uh, it's been a difficult period, and it and it's Starbucks, man. Those drinks are complicated. Oh, it's yeah. it's it's, and I'm a I'm I'm a I'm an old fashioned hot coffee, hot drip coffee drinker, and I will be until the day that I die. I tend to think, frankly, that most Starbucks drinks are just generally glorified milkshakes, you know, and and are desserts and 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 things like that. So. It's just a little bit too much for for this old man, but you know it's they're really difficult to make now. To Starbucks credit, they're taking a lot of steps to fix that. I mean, there you know there are three pieces of or three new pieces of equipment or system changes that they're doing. You know, one of them is is a new coffee brewer that you know instead of batch brewing their coffee every ten minutes or so, you know they're basically getting what amounts to be a Keurig. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> hope, right. hope the coffee is better on that than it is with the care. And then, then they're, um, you know, then they have a new system for cold beverages, which I think will make a big difference, probably cutting the time more in half. And then they're going to do a new cold brew system. So they are taking steps in the right direction on, on that front, which is going to be necessary, um, certainly for that workforce. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Positively. Um, you know, in talking to employees, uh, Speed of service is a pressure that they really feel because the the array of drinks has really kind of increased, and yet the customers are more demanding than ever. So they really feel that pressure to deliver quickly, and hence there's a lot more, according to them, a lot more errors. And then you've got the whole problem dealing with a disgruntled customer, rather. So it, it, it's an interesting thing. I, I really think the industry missed an opportunity or squandered an opportunity and alienated employees rather than drawing them closer during the pandemic. And in the industry's defense, they were trying to, the operators were trying to stay alive. Uh, they were trying to keep their business afloat. But you talk with employees and they say that that was a change and that's sort of the tenor of restaurant work. And that is no doubt, in my estimation, um, making workers more receptive to the pitches of the unions than ever before. It, the White House is definitely going to great lengths to make unionization easier. I mean, Biden has flatly stated that that's one of his core objectives. And and you see it in the business. It, it's unbelievable the strides that the union has made in terms of uh, getting two seats on the National Labor Relations Board 
That's the entity that's supposed to be impartial to foster or to police unionization. And here you have two alumni of the SEIU on that board. And it shows with the proposal to redefine joint employer and not to get lost in the weeds as something so geeky, but essentially that'll allow a union to pull a backdoor move to to unionize a McDonald's or a Burger King by unionizing a, a franchisee or two. And I don't think your average operator out there realizes that. Uh, so you have things like that. But but there's a, a tremendous amount of union activity, both in terms of organizing, in terms of pushing for what's right for employees. And the industry just seems like it's it's not fully aware of all that that that's going on in that in that realm. Yeah, I think it goes back to I think what you, what you were mentioning what Kevin Hockman said. Kevin Hockman, by the way, is going to be fabulous for Chili's. I remain I remain convinced mm-hmm. of that. Okay. He's, you know, he's he's uh, he was he's a a he's going to be a good uh, executive for them and and uh, very different from past Chili's executives. Yeah, Kevin, uh, if if uh, for no other reason is is definitely going to be a fun type of person to to lead a company, and that's. I know I don't necessarily need to go on this this long soliloquy about 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 this, but I am, you know, I mean, this is what this industry is all about, you know, and and, you know, this is what like I I like to think about at at RB. I mean, it's obviously can be a very serious industry for sure. And uh, I, I don't mean to overlook that stuff. You know, and it's a big business and all that other stuff. But ultimately, when somebody goes out to a restaurant, when people go out to eat, they are looking on balance to have a fun time. It's the reason why people don't, for instance, generally eat health food when they go out to eat because they're indulging. They're going out to have fun. They're going out for drinks. They're having fun with friends. They just don't want to cook and they just want to have a good relaxing time. Ultimately, that's what this is all about. And if your employees are not enjoying themselves at work, it's going to be, you know, it can be reflecting, it can reflect on the customer base. And, and, you know, and that to me is one of the ways of the key elements, certainly going forward, if a restaurant company wants to attract and retain employees, not to mention hold back the unionization drive, that's probably the best way to do it. This is a fun industry. And I think sometimes we forget that. Oh, no doubt about it. You know, I remember going into a Chili's into the kitchen must have been 88 or around there. And their instructions for what to wear consisted of a pair of jeans that were taped up to uh, a door. And it said, if your jeans are more faded than these, you need to change them tomorrow. They had an incentive to cut food waste. It consisted of a special garbage can. And if they could keep that garbage can, food scraps, if they could keep that garbage can from getting filled within, I think it was a week, that uh, they would uh, be rewarded with a sound system for the kitchen. I mean, it was fun. It was different. Mm -hmm. It was unusual. And it, it... Started at the top and went all the way down. Creed Ford, one of the uh, uh, original uh, uh, executives, he used to uh, he was known to take out his electric guitar and stand up at board meetings and let loose with a couple rips. And uh, uh, he would sometimes stand up and say, hey, we're not curing cancer here. 
we're making sure people have a good time. And I think that somehow or another, the industry has lost that. And, and you're right. I mean, there is something special. You talk to people who work in the restaurant business or have worked in the restaurant business. A lot of times those were special years. They made for lifelong friends. They have great memories. We're losing that. It's become a slog. It's become a lot more like working in a factory. Oh, yeah. And uh, we got to reclaim that for yeah, sure. And that can happen certainly in in. Uh, it can happen certainly in 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 the fast food world, which is sort of uh, one of the problems that it's facing is that it's been going in this direction of, I mean, the industry sort of is is uh, kind of bifurcating. Yeah, on one hand, you're going to have, you know, these these you know full service restaurants or or maybe certain types of limited service restaurants that are going towards fun times. So you're you're getting like entertainment chains. By the mm-hmm. way, are doing really well, mm-hmm. um, and you know steakhouses and all that other stuff. You know where people really want to go and and they're okay spending a few bucks you know they they want to have fun they want to get together with friends but on the other hand you know you got this sort of sort of take out almost a, um, a manufacturing operation where it's going in and and i think that's a challenge for that particular group uh and and they're the ones that face the probably the biggest challenges going forward trying to get workers because you don't necessarily want to work in an assembly line unless you can help it um, but speaking of the fast food business, we need to pivot because the other big issue is what's going on in California. Where is the fast act stand right now, uh, Peter? So the fast act is now law. The law was amended and the, the, the bill was amended in the final go round to address some of the, the major uh, criticisms that employers had about it, but it didn't go far enough. And one of those conditions that was set was that the structure had to be approved by 10,000 people. Those 10,000 happened to be, uh, the law specified, it had to be approved by 10,000 fast food workers. Uh, They had to sign a petition to validate this law. Um, That process is happening right now. You don't hear a lot about that, but that's going on. And of course, 10,000 signatures on a petition is not a lot. Uh, usually it's you know hundreds of thousands to get something on the ballot. So that's happening right now, but it, it's full steam ahead in California for that. So they probably will cross that step off the to-do list and then uh, appoint the fast food council. And I still don't think that most operators realize whether they're in California or out, what this act does that it creates basically a council to set working conditions and wages and 40 percent of that council consists of employees or union representatives so uh and and what uh 40 percent of the seats are held by employers but the other remaining 20 percent the swing votes they, those votes will be held by uh administrators and those administrators in California tend to have a, defi- a definite pro-labor stance. So essentially, the lawmakers out there have said, OK, we'll let the employees really be active in setting their own wages and working conditions. Um, so you've got that. That is real. That is there for workers in California. And already on the day that it was signed, the unions came out and said there are six more states that we want to roll this into. And in addition, there are going to be cities that they target to do this. So that is a very transportable model 
in the minds of the unions, and they are already working to bring that model to states like mine, New York, Illinois, Washington, Oregon. So it is a reality and should be an extreme wake-up call for operators everywhere. But even the lobbyists or even the association people will say that's not the case. That people say, well, what's this FAST Act all about? And how did this happen? Is this real? How could this actually happen? But it did. And needless to say, that's going to be a, a real boon for unions because it allows them to demonstrate sort of the advocacy that they can bring to any interaction or any dealings with employers. So they're really counting on uh, this sort of spreading the word about their benefits. One aspect, not to get too geeky, that uh, was not really addressed too much is that the fact FAST Act does exempt certain businesses, um, not only in terms of if they're, uh, if a franchise of a restaurant is not part of a 100-unit chain, it's exempt. But in addition, if a restaurant has a collective bargaining agreement, and that agreement provides for wages that are 30% higher than what the fast food council sets up, that facility is exempted. That's an incentive for for the employees to really unionize because the flip side of that is, well, the least we'll take is a 30% uh, wage, 30% above what the fast food council sets. So there's a real incentive for employees to think hard and fast about joining a union and to some degree for an employer letting the union uh, take root because uh, it exempts them from it gets them out of the uh, requirements that this fast food council might hand down. Now, let me play devil's advocate for a minute, because then as you've been as you've known over the years that if we've had if I had a nickel for the number of times that somebody declared doom for this industry. I would be literally drowning in nickels. I have way too many of them. Mm-hmm. You know, and the thing that we saw with uh, the $15 wage is a perfect example of this. We're roughly at $15 wages right now in many, many places because of of, of demand for labor. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, it seems fine. You know, the industry has actually handled it pretty well. Uh, you know, the, the workforce, you can talk about inflation to a certain extent, you know, but there are certainly many other factors behind inflation besides the fact that restaurant employees are getting $15 an hour. In fact, menu prices at restaurants are actually uh, underperforming the broader inflation rate right now. Mm-hmm. So my con- my question on this is like, what's the big deal? Why would this be a problem for uh, the restaurant industry, even the, the fast food industry, if it goes to $22 an hour in short order, you know, they, you know, they could raise prices, they would potentially get the better workers, because suddenly, you know, these, these, these employees that the industry couldn't get before, suddenly going to get attracted to a $22 an hour uh, rate that they can get at fast food. What's the problem? Well, you know, it, it, and I think I've even covered the industry longer than you have. And I, I too, can remember so many instances where the industry was on the brink of could collapse. This was this uh, proposal was going to kill it. I mean, I think about things like the change in the business meal deduction uh, you used to be able to write off 100 percent of uh, a, a meal you took in the course of your work. Uh, and that's 
was cut down to 50%. This was going to just kill the industry. And of course, it's still thriving. But I think this time around, it's a matter of the scale. The scale makes us unique. The $22 an hour is not such a big issue. Uh, that's not the the tough, the, the bitter pill to swallow with the FAST Act. In fact, that number was decided upon because it was hoped that it would be a bit of a nothing burger, that so many places are paying above 22 bucks an hour that it would uh, sort of ease the, the process of, of uh, acceptance for employers. What makes this difference different is not the initial results, but that the process has been changed to give employees that say, not only in wages, but in working conditions. And they can do things like demand that breaks be extended to a half hour, and they have a good chance of pushing that through. So I do think that this is not a matter of an adjustment that needs to be made. This to me is really instituting a whole new model with all the fallout that that brings to it. And of course, we're just talking about the FAST Act and and that sort of endeavor. In talking about the unions and talking about their whole strength, you know, their next area of focus is going to be on the tip credit. And there we're talking about, you know, if the tip credit is disallowed in most states that currently have a a tip credit, that'll make a difference of 40 to 50% in the wages of servers. And more important, that will increase the gap between front of house and back of house wages and make it that much tougher. So these are this these go farther than those sort of um, wolf at the door warnings that have been sounded in the past. Uh, this is much more a matter of um, really changing how the, the industry works and giving what had been traditionally an employer uh, responsibility and and uh, uh, their uh, something that they controlled wholly, giving a piece of that empowerment to uh, to the employee, and that's what's really different, and that's what could make the change. Um, will the industry survive? Yeah, sure, of course it will. Restaurants are not going to go away, but really, what the industry should be worried about is no matter how you slice it, this is going to drive up prices. And the question is, how much of this will the customer accept? You know, we could do away with tips tomorrow if we uh, put servers on a salary, but would the customer accept that uh, that change and paying that much? So that's really the question. It, it is a sea change. It is yeah. it is much more than just a deepening of the issues we've seen in the past. It is a whole different setup. Yeah. I don't know that I have as much a concern about the about the the council in and of itself as I have with the fact that it's it, it, it targets a specific group rather than, you know, the broad overall, you know, employment landscape. And, you know, it's always, you know, it's and, and, and I'll be the first to admit that there are a lot of, you know, that a lot of those jobs are not great. And, you know, it's hard work. It's very hard work, actually. And you know, and certainly a number of operators need to improve the way they treat their employees, as we talked earlier. But uh, so do a lot of other employers. And, you know, and then you're kind of leaving those companies out. And that's my 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 biggest issue. And then you don't really get the, you know, there's an economic benefit to raising pay like that. Like if you're going to raise pay for the minute for the lower end, you know, and you raise all wages, you know, there's an economic benefit. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and and this, you know, this doesn't have as much of an economic benefit you're hoping, but it doesn't necessarily do it because you're only targeting fast food workers um, and not not the not, not the broader population. That's really only, you know, I mean, gosh, that's uh, you know, what's the percentage of of the workforce that works at at fast food restaurants? It's um, you know, it's not it's not huge. It's what maybe three percent. Right. So, you know, that's that's kind of an issue. So. Well, ironically, what the issue you're bringing up, well, you know, it targets one specific sector of the economy, one specific sector of the the industry that is going to turn into a lever for the unions to try to spread this to the full service sector and smaller quick service operations, because indeed there is an unfairness that's inherent in that. And employers use that to to put up resistance against the law. And now I think that there's going to be a little bit of um, lobbying jujitsu and using that against employers saying, hey, why should uh, uh, full service workers not have the same benefits as fast food workers? And plus, just the marketplace is is making them feel the same thing. So uh, I think that that'll become part of the gasoline that fuels the the spread of uh, models like the, the one created by the FAST Act. Sure. Super. Peter, this is fantastic. Appreciate you joining me this week to talk about these issues. Uh, always a pleasure, Jonathan. Thank you. And that should do it for this week's episode of A Deeper Dive, which was edited, as always, by Kimi Kazmarek. Our work by Nico Hines. You may find this and other episodes of the podcast on our website at www.restaurantbusinessonline.com backslash article backslash deeper dash dive. You may also find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere you get your fancy listening shows. I'm Jonathan Mays, your host, podcast producer, and the editor-in-chief of Restaurant Business. Thank you for listening. Operators, start earning points with Lamb Weston's new Potato Perks app. Redeem points for back-of-house smallwares, custom marketing materials, and more. Register today to get your free 500 points and a rebate up to $100. Visit go.lambweston.com slash potato perks sign up to download.